Welcome to ECDHR in Conversation on Political Prisoners in the UAE. We hope that through this series, you will get a better understanding of the human rights situation in the UAE, which will cover freedom of expression, political prisoners, and the grossly unfair mass UAE 94 trial that imprisoned dozens of activists solely for peacefully exercising their rights to freedom and association. Our speakers will help us to reveal the truth about human rights violations in the UAE, given their personal experience and expertise on the subject. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the podcast ECDHR in Conversation on the UAE and in particular the case of the UAE 94. Today we are very glad to be receiving Ines Osman, who is a French Algerian human rights lawyer and the co-founder and director of Mina Rights Group, a Geneva-based legal advocacy NGO defending victims of human rights abuses and promoting fundamental rights and freedoms in the Middle East and North Africa region. Ines, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Cami, for having me. I'm really excited to discuss this very important topic. The interview with you, Ines, will uh, have two different parts. In the first one, we will discuss a bit more of the UAE as a country, what its, its legal system, its political system, how it functions and how this functioning can help these uh, human rights abuses that are taking place. And in the second part, my colleague Alina will introduce more of the role of NGOs and the international community and what can be done about these issues. So let's start with the first part of this podcast. We had previous episodes on the UAE and we were always struck by the fact that the UAE has such a positive image. It is known for tourism. It is known for glamorous lifestyle, and it is really perceived as a modern country who has the latest technology, a great economic prosperity. So first of all, from your experience as a human rights expert, is this image true at all? Well, first of all, just to you know, get the record straight, I've never been to the UAE actually, so I'm just you know speaking from from outside. Um, I guess it depends on how you want to define modernity. Um, if you define it by yes, like latest technology, um, tall buildings and whatnot, yes, in that case, I think we could fairly say that the UAE is very modern. But if you want to define modernity by I don't know, the freedom to speak your mind uh, whenever you want to, then the UAE is definitely one of the least modern um, countries out there. And I think it's also important to recall that this great um, economic prosperity and this um, quote-unquote glamour side and, and modern side, at what cost, you know, um, when you think of, for example, the situation of migrant workers, Etc. Like it's it's not all glamorous. It's just a facade, and it's what we see from the outside. But at the end of the day, the modernity we see 
comes at the cost of lives of certain people who are denied their basic rights. So that's definitely something to to keep in mind when we consider the quote-unquote modernity or not of, of the UAE. Yeah, so as you just said, basically, there is some truth to this image, but of course, it has many limits, and mainly because of the human rights aspect of it and how you just mentioned migrant workers, how this wealth is actually built on lives of, of people. Do you think that the international community is aware at all of what is happening in the UAE? And uh, how do you think the UAE works to hide its crimes or at least hide this aspect of very poor human rights record? I mean, obviously, there is a lot of uh, whitewashing, as as we call it, coming from the UAE through the organization, like through holding sports events or Um, you know, having celebrities kind of promote um, Dubai as the the place where everyone wants to be, etc. But I think in terms of how the UAE has been portraying themselves under a good light with, you know, the international community, as we call it, so third states, etc., is also through a lot of like soft power slash diplomacy. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, about their um, so-called ministry of tolerance. But, you know, the UAE are trying to play kind of a prominent role in, yes, being at the forefront of, quote unquote, the fight for more tolerance, you know, or even promoting so-called like uh, prevention of extremism programs. Like they're trying to definitely play that tolerance card But actually, when you look closer, like the UAE is far from being a, a tolerant country. So I think this this card is definitely one that they've, they've been using at the international stage. I want to go a bit further in that because we have been talking for some episodes and also with you with the first few questions about the human rights violations that the UAE commit. And I'm thinking that maybe some uh, people that are listening to us right now come from democratic country and they might, you know, not understand how it is possible to have such huge human rights violations. So as we saw, the UAE is not a democracy. It prohibits freedom of expression. It imprisons anyone who, you know, dares to, to criticize the government. So Can you maybe describe for us a little bit the UAE political system? Are there elections? Can citizens speak their mind? Can they, you know, participate in uh, the life of their country? Very good question, because if you take a closer look, uh, I think the UAE is definitely one of the most restrictive countries um, out there. So in a nutshell, uh, the UAE is a federation of seven emirates, so each um, ruled by, by their, their own ruler. It doesn't have a parliament, so there is like a national federal council, which is a sort of parliament, but not really, because actually it only has like an advisory function. So they only allegedly advise on laws, but they have no um, they have no decision making power. And actually, half of the members are chosen directly by the rulers, and the other half are supposedly elected by Emirati citizens. But the process is very opaque. Um, and also, you might know that in the UAE, political parties are forbidden. So all these candidates are like allegedly independent candidates, but you know you can really call into call into question the the process. So yes, on paper 
there are elections, but in practice, they don't mean much because the parliament is not playing, you know, the, the role that it is playing in, um, in democracies. Yeah, so basically, we can say that people cannot really express their opinion, or at least not freely, because we have been talking also in this podcast about uh, political prisoners. So basically, what happens is if you are not happy about the way the system works, you just mentioned the parliament that is a facade, then you will probably be imprisoned. I want to switch now to the legal aspect of this. How, how is it legal to imprison people for speaking their mind? How does the legal system in the UAE work? Does it have a constitution? Does it have human rights? How is that legal? There is a constitution. And um, if you look at it, you could think that the UAE are quite respectful of fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, freedom of expression is protected. There is also the absolute prohibition of torture, etc. Like, but I guess that applies to most constitutions in the world. I think if you if you read them, like most seem quite human rights friendly, but then the practice is, uh, is otherwise. So in theory, the constitution does protect basic rights and freedoms to some extent. But the problem is that you have a very restrictive legal framework and without going into the details, very restrictive provisions in the penal code, in the cybercrime law, in the anti-terrorism law. And the rights that are ensuring in the constitution actually don't mean much because they are heavily restricted by, by these other pieces of legislations. And just to give like a couple of examples, for example, um, insulting the president of the UAE or mocking the flag, you actually risk a maximum of 25 years in prison. So if I go on Twitter and I say that I don't like the Emirati flag, I could end up in prison for 25 years. So it just kind of shows you like the the extent of of these these provisions and it just yeah it demonstrates that people cannot really say anything in the UAE and there is this climate of this climate of of silence because at the end of the day you risk so much and uh, i can also imagine that even though like you said the constitution appears as very human rights friendly etc once you are in prison i can easily imagine you cannot appeal that decision or at least that you know the judicial system is friendly to the government and so therefore there is no way for instance for political prisoners to appeal that decision and make the judicial system respect the constitution Absolutely. The judiciary in, in the UAE suffers from a great lack of, of independence and impartiality, and most prisoners of conscience are actually brought before the state security court, uh, which is an exceptional jurisdiction that actually does not only cover like state security or terrorism crimes, but also crimes under the cybercrime law or the penal code. And uh, the problem is that when you're prosecuted before this court, actually you can't even appeal the decision. So it's first and last instance, and, and the decision is, is final. And obviously, there is many, many flaws. Confessions extracted under torture are often, I mean, often slash systematically admitted as evidence. And there's a lot of impediments to access to a lawyer. Lawyers also very often face threats. Um, you know, if you're a prisoner of conscience, like it's it's actually quite hard to find someone who would be willing to represent you because they they also risk so much by simply being your lawyer. 
So yes, overall, the, this lack of independence of the judiciary makes it you know, virtually impossible for anyone who ends up before a court at some point to, to actually challenge the, the process in a, in a fair manner. Yes, and, and now that we are talking about uh, the legal aspect, uh, we just talked about how it's difficult to challenge, you know, a, a sentence, but there has been a very huge issue in the UAE that is indefinite detention. So for uh, people that might not know what it is, it means that an individual is sentenced to a certain amount of time in prison. So for example, 10 years, but when that period of time is over, so the person has been in prison 10 years, he or she is still not released. So how is that possible? What legal tools are used by the government to not release someone who, you know, is done with uh, their sentence? Yes, that's an excellent question. So actually what you were talking about is based on the anti-terrorism law. So under that law, there is a provision saying that so-called rehabilitation centers are established for the purpose of rehabilitating people with deviant, extremist, or terrorist thoughts. So you can imagine that this can virtually apply to everything and, and anything. And so under that provision, you can serve your prison sentence and then be kept under that regime. And the problem, as you highlighted, is that it's more equivalent to a form of administrative detention. So you don't have to necessarily appear before a judge. You actually can't challenge that decision and it can be renewed indefinitely. So there is no maximum period that you can be held under that, that re rehabilitation regime. And as you highlighted, it's been used and is continues to be used to actually prolong the detention of prisoners of conscience who've served their like 10, 15 years in prison. And then they're like, oh, but wait, we actually think that you have some deviant or terrorist thoughts. So we're going to keep you under that new regime. And so basically they end up never being released and, and being kept under, under this regime. Yeah, I, I want to go a bit further on, on this discussion on the counterterrorism laws, because I think it's a great example of how it's not always a debate between what is legal or what is illegal, because, for instance, it can be legal under UAE law, but it's totally illegal under international law. So how in the definition of terrorism, how can a country include peaceful protesters? I think the, um, the sort of contradiction you felt between like what's legal and not legal is actually related to the principle of legal certainty. So essentially, if you, I don't know, if you read your, your penal code, you should be able to know if something you're about to commit is a crime or not. And that's a very important principle because in, it means it's legal certainty. And the problem with the, the Emirati anti-terrorism law is that the law does not abide by, the, by this principle. So when you read the definition of terrorism or some of the provisions, you actually don't know what you could do that could trigger, like that could have you get prosecuted under these provisions. And one very important element, I mean, there is no agreed upon definition of terrorism, actually, which is quite problematic. But I think there is a consensus around the fact that terrorism has component of violence. 
And the Emirati definition of terrorism, there is no element of violence in the definition, which obviously is quite problematic because a terrorist act is a violent act in itself. And so what you will find in the anti-terrorism law is provisions that criminalize, for example, seeking to change the ruling system of the UAE. And that's a terrorist act. So clearly, if you're if you're an activist or a protester or a blogger, whatever, and you're saying that, you know, um, you would like to have democratically elected um, parliament, then you're seeking to change the ruling system. And that's an act of terrorism. So with that in mind, you know, it's it's yeah, it's quite easy to understand why actually those all those prisoners of conscience end up being prosecuted for terrorism when in fact you know they obviously have have nothing to do with they're not terrorists and they have not committed any anything close to a terrorist act so we're coming close to the end of this part of the podcast because as i mentioned there is a second part of your interview which uh will target a bit more what can be done about this situation but just to close terrorism law We mentioned, uh, and you mentioned in particular, the violence aspect and how internationally it's agreed that a terrorist is someone who is violent, while in the UAE it's not the case at all. So I was wondering, are there any international law mechanisms to counter, in a way, national law that does not respect human rights? I wish the answer were yes, but it's not. I mean, there is one of the UN special procedures of the Human Rights Councils that is actually spe- specialized on this on this topic, and that's the um, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. And actually, um, she produced a very extensive and detailed analysis of the UAE counterterrorism framework in uh, November 2020. So for those interested, I highly invite you to check it out. And yes, basically highlighting like how the how this framework is, is not aligned with international human rights standards. And that is also one semi-legal way um, that there is for, for these special procedures to provide comments on, on the laws. The problem is that, of course, it's not, you know, these are just comments. Uh, they're not binding and the UAE cannot be forced to amend their legal framework and, and comply with human rights standards. And they actually have not even responded to the letter um, slash analysis that I just mentioned. So it kind of shows that they have no intention of, of amending their, their legal framework. But that is one way, let's say, that there is to to criticize or encourage um, countries to actually align their their legal framework with uh, international human rights standards. Okay, so on this note, you know, uh, you will, uh, as I mentioned in the second part of this podcast, uh, develop a bit more on what can be done and what mechanisms exist to change the situation in the UAE. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Ines, for um, this you. first part. Uh, we hope that uh, people are listening to us and they got a better overview of the legal and political system in the UAE and they understand a bit better why it is um, as it is, you know, and why these human rights violations are committed. So thank you once again, Ines, for being with us today and stay tuned, everyone, for the second part of this podcast. On behalf of ACDHR, thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcasts. The next episode will be available next Friday. 
In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our social media channels if you want to learn more about the human rights situation in the GCC countries.